you're not really here and this isn't really happening. And the reason I know that is because I've been told many times since 1976 when I first came to see why there was a Protestant Reformation and why there was a, such a thing as Reformed theology that you don't really believe in missions and evangelism, so this thing isn't really happening. We're not really here. This is all a hologram that's been set up by somebody in outer space. Well, obviously that's not true. The Protestant reformers did believe in the Great Commission and in missions and evangelism. And in fact, this afternoon, I'm going to be taking one of the greatest of the reformers and show you that his heart, his theology, his life ministry was to see the gospel spread throughout the earth. But I've been tasked this morning to speak on the means of missions. If God has a purpose, and we saw earlier the verses from Matthew 28, 19, and 20, go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey everything whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I'm with you to the end of the age. That is the great commission. That's the commandment that God gave the disciples and through the disciples to the churches down through the centuries until the job is completed. The question is, how is God going to get that done? Now, if you're like most people, you struggle with not being imbalanced. By that, I don't mean that you fall over, or that you have an inner ear infection, and you have a difficult time uh, standing upright. But I'm saying that most people find it hard to hold two things together that the Bible says belongs together. We tend to be either-or people. What do I mean by that? Well, the Bible says that Christ has two natures. He's holy God, undiminished, equal to the Father, equal to the Holy Spirit. But after his incarnation through the Virgin Mary, he became also holy a man. He's not a pretend man. He's not a kind of sort of man. He's not a really close but not quite man. He is holy man but without sin. And the Bible says both of these things are true. You go, I don't know if I can wrap my brain around that. Hey, join the club. But the Bible says there are things that we don't, can't comprehend, and it shouldn't bother us. I mean, if you could figure everything out about God, then one of you would be unnecessary. Think about it. If you could figure God out, if you were as smart as God, we wouldn't need one of you. But you're not. I'm not. It doesn't bother me. I feel great comfort in the fact that I don't ever understand everything that's revealed. This is a revelation from God. It doesn't claim to be men's best gropings after God, men's musings about religion, people sitting under a tree thinking, well, I like to think about God as being this way. No, this claims to be a revealing of God, of who He is and what He's up to. And He's a God who is holy, holy, holy. But He's also a God who loves to save what the Bible calls sinners, rebels and lawbreakers who He turns into children of God by sheer grace. And you're here this morning by that sure grace. One of the th other things we don't like to balance out is, for example, the two natures of Scripture. The Bible says that all Scripture is God-breathed. God, the Holy Spirit, breathed out these Bible verses through, the second half, ordinary human beings. Paul and Peter and David and Moses and all these different people. And they were just sinful, ordinary human beings but called of God, and then the Holy Spirit breathed upon them. And when they put pen to paper, they were inspired of God, and these are the very words of God for mankind. You go, well, I have a hard time getting my brain around how God the Holy Spirit could, so to speak, breathe out these words, and these fallen men could write them down, and how does that work? 
Well, we don't exactly know. We know what the Scripture describes of the process. God, the Holy Spirit, came upon them. But in terms of the Holy Spirit and human beings wrote the Bible. So the co-author of every book of the Bible is God, the Holy Spirit. But as you read it, Moses doesn't sound like David, and David doesn't sound like Paul, and Paul doesn't sound like Peter, and none of them sound like John or whoever wrote the book of Hebrews. You go, there's two things we have to keep together. We have to keep the Holy Spirit and the human authors as together in the writing of the Bible. Some people like to divide up word and spirit. There are people who, I'm into the Holy Spirit. We need to have more of the Holy Spirit in the churches. And they ring that bell all the time. Hey, if you're a Christian, that means you're Trinitarian and you believe in the Holy Spirit and you believe there's one God in three persons and you believe in God the Holy Spirit. But the Bible also says the Spirit works by and with the Scriptures. He's just not floating around looking to give someone a zap. He works through... That's a technical term in the Greek. Um, he, does, he works through the Scriptures. I don't sit at home and praying that God would speak to me in my devotional time. I pray that God the Holy Spirit would illuminate my, line, my mind. It's like going into a dark closet and fumbling for the old-fashioned string that used to hang down, and you find it, you pull it, and you go, hey, that's what's in the closet. Well, I pray for the illumination of the Holy Spirit so I can understand what God the Holy Spirit inspired Moses or David or Paul or Peter or whoever to write. So we have to keep word and spirit in balance. Now, in this missions conference, I'm going to try to do something that people don't normally do, is to keep the two halves of what the Bible teaches, the two polar opposites, so to speak, and the Bible teaches both, and we have to hold on to both. God is absolutely sovereign and has decreed that He will save a people through His Son, Jesus Christ. And God has sovereignly ordained that the means of saving these people is through puny little cracked clay pots, which is the phrase the New Testament uses. You and I are cracked clay pots. Clay pots, guys, are those little kind of orange flower pots your wives put, or girlfriends put their flowers in, terracotta pots. That's what Paul had in mind. It doesn't take much to crack a terracotta pot. We're cracked clay pots, and God says, my glory shines when I use these little puny creatures and I use them for the establishment of my kingdom and the fulfillment of the Great Commission. The absolute sovereignty of God and the faithfulness of God's people, the church, down through the century. Pastor Nick read one of the two passages on human responsibility. Romans 10. There are no scarier passages in the Bible if you're a sinful human being in one sense than to read Romans chapter 9 and Romans 11. I remember as a young Christian going in the kitchen and getting an oven mitt, you know, those things you put on your hand to grab hot dishes with. And I would get to Romans chapter 9, and I would turn the pages like this, and chapter 11, because what? God is really being God in those chapters. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will harden who I will harden. And who in the world are you to say anything back to me? Right. I'll just keep going here. That wasn't a warm fuzzy I was hoping for in my devotions. But God grew me up and said, why don't you grow up and settle down and be a man and, and look at God who's showing himself here. Well, what comes between Romans 9 and 11? What did I go to seminary to discover? That's right, Romans 10 comes in the middle of Romans 9 and 11. You go, you're just being a smarty. Well, think about it. Sandwiched between the two strongest passages, sustained argument on the sovereignty of God in all things, but especially in salvation, comes a passage that was just read in your hearing that God says, how are people going to believe in Christ if they've never heard of Christ? 
we heard in Sunday school. And we heard about a 45-year-old woman in China who had never heard the name Jesus Christ, didn't know who he was, had never heard of the Bible. What's that? Well, Paul argues, how are they going to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they going to hear unless someone goes and tells them? And how is someone going to tell them unless they're sent? So he reasons back from people believing in Christ and their need to believe in Christ to we need to have preachers and they need to be sent out and they need to go tell people the gospel. God works through means. When I was a young Christian, I was kind of naive and I don't know what I thought, but it's like you're praying for God to work in, in uh, Mumbai, formerly known as Bombay, India. So here's a guy walking down the street of Mumbai, and suddenly an invisible hand grabs him by the neck, drags him into a dark alley. You hear some scuffling back there, and he comes out a new creature in Christ. He got a zap from the Holy Spirit just walking down the street, and that's how he got saved. Folks, you go, I'm, you may be thinking, you're way too sophisticated to think something naive like that. Well, let me ask you, how do you think people over there are going to come to Christ unless someone's over there to tell them? Are you expecting a bolt of lightning from heaven to strike the poor guy in some alleyway and he's going to come to Christ? That's not biblical. God works through means, and he says, my means are my people. As weak as you are, as much of a young Christian you are, as inarticulate as you and I may feel, as bumbling as we may be, let's see, there's God and Jesus and sin. Oh, that's not the right order. And we feel like we're not very good witnesses. God says, I'm going to choose to work through cracked clay pots like you to accomplish this fantastic, impossible mission that all the world will hear the gospel and God will call this great, unnumbered host. Genesis and Revelation will both say, more than the stars of the sky. If you live in the Middle East, you can see a lot of stars. And more than the sands of the seashore. So shall Abraham's descendants be. So shall the people of faith that I'm going to save as gifts to my son. So I'd like you to turn over to Isaiah chapter 49 to see one of the passages on God's sovereign decree that he's going to save a people. And it's such an important passage that we're going to camp on this and we're going to camp on the ideas behind Romans chapter 10 to try to show you there's two halves. God is sovereign. He gives the people to his son. His son got what he paid for. And he says, I want you to be faithful to play your part. I'm not asking you to be Martin Luther. I'm not asking you to be Katie Luther. I'm not asking you to be John Wesley. Or, Sus or I'm not asking you to be Charles Spurgeon or Susanna Spurgeon. I'm asking you to be you, Christian you, available if God wants to use you, you. Okay, Romans, excuse me, Isaiah 40, 49, the Gospel of Isaiah. Listen to me, O coastlands. Okay, quick, what's that? Well, in Israel, they weren't a seafaring people. And so for much of their time, they didn't even control the seacoast. And for the landlocked people in Israel, the coastlands were the farthest edges of the world. Like Savannah, Georgia, that's a coastland far away. Listen to me, O coastlands. Give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord, notice it's all capitals, capital L, capital O, capital R, and capital D. In your English Bibles, when it's all caps, it means... I am who I am. I am the sovereign covenant God, the sovereign covenant-making God who has entered into a covenant with his people, proclaims. And here Isaiah says about this person. Who is this person? Well, Isaiah 49 is one of four servant songs or servant passages in the book of Isaiah that talk about someone who's to come. 
He's not here yet. He was promised in Genesis 3.15. The seed of the woman has not come, but he is coming. It's coming closer. It's coming a lot closer. This is still 800 years before Christ. But by the time you get to the fourth and final servant song in Isaiah 53, you go, oh my God, it's Jesus. He's right here. How could the Jews have missed him? It's right here in Isaiah 53. Who else is he describing? This fits Jesus to a T. But let's back up and look at this third servant song and see what it says about God's sovereign decree to save a people. The Lord called me from the womb. This is the servant speaking. From the body of my mother he named my name. The New Testament says you shall call his name Jesus for he shall save his people from their sins. He made my mouth like a sharp sword and the shadow of his ha- in the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. It goes right to the target. In his quiver he hid me away, the silent years, first 30 years of his life largely. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel. Another one of Jesus' title is Israel. Israel never was the, the faithful son, so Jesus comes to become the faithful Israel. Israel, in, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, and here you have to think of Christ on the cross, or maybe in the Garden of Gethsemane. How encouraged was Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane? I cannot envision the agony that was there. The great J.C. Ryle said, When I get to heaven, after I adore and worship the Lord Jesus Christ, I want to go over and take the hand of that angel, if angels have hands, because it says in Luke's Gospel, the Father dispatched an angel to encourage Christ when he was in great agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he's going, God, if in my humanity I've forgotten something, this would be a good time to remind me, because I see hell coming. And God dispatched an angel to encourage him to finish the task. Can you imagine him saying this in the Garden of Gethsemane? You know, everybody's going to leave him and flee. I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. But then he comes to his right thinking. Yet surely my right, my vindication is with the Lord and my recompense, my payback, my reward with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, that would be the Jews, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of my God, and my Lord and my God has become my strength. He says, and this is the whole point, but you get the context. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. I'm going to stop here. I gave a little devotional one Wednesday night at a prayer meeting, and this was the devotional. But as people are praying, I'm meditating on this passage, and the profundity of it began to really affect me and wear on me at this meeting. God wants us to think with Him for just a minute. And the Father says to His Son, this one who is coming, to send you to save a few Jews, relatively speaking, Only two tribes ever came back from the exile. Did you know that? The 12 tribes went into exile, 10 in the northern, 2 in the south, but only two ever came back from exile. The rest were lost for history, the 10 northern tribes. He said, I'm sending God the Son, and He's just going to save a few Jews? 
I don't think so. And he uses the phrase this way. He says, it's too light a thing. I like the way the ESV translates it. Most versions translate it as it's too small a thing. But the literal Hebrew word is light. And what they do is they say, well, if something's light, it's probably small. But here's the rationale. Think of the scales of justice. Think you've seen old-fashioned scales. In the olden days, they used to have scales. They still have kind of sort of scales in the grocery store to buy vegetables, but they're not the old-fashioned kind. The old-fashioned kind were a balanced scale, and you had certain weights that you knew how much they weighed, one ounce, one pound, ten pounds, whatever, and you put it on this side. And then you would actually you'd start over here with what you're buying, and you'd keep adding weights until they balanced. And then you'd count up the weights, and you'd know how much this thing weighed. So the father is saying, do you think that I'm going to give my son and place him on the scale of my justice? Thump! The scale goes down with a loud thud. What are you going to put on the other side that my son came to purchase? A few Jews, two tribes of the house of Israel? I don't think so. It's too light a thing. And the idea of too light is, imagine going into a grocery store and you go over to the person in the produce department and say, excuse me, can you help me? Yes, ma'am. Uh, there's some dust on the scale. Would you mind getting rid of it? I want to make sure this is really an accurate read. He goes, ma'am, I'm not sure. We don't have dust here in Kroger, wherever you shop locally, Piggly Wiggly. He says, okay, I'll come over and help you. He goes, there, weigh them. Deal with it. Uh, you wouldn't do that. It's ridiculous. They're, they're, it's inconsequential. It's too light a thing. And he says, my son coming and purchasing just a small number of people, it's too light a thing. I'm giving my son the nations. He shall be the light to the nations. And people from every tribe and tongue and people group on the face of the earth are going to come eventually. There will not be anybody missing before Christ's throne. He didn't save five people. He didn't save 12 Jews. He saved a great unnumbered multitude that no man can count. We don't know who they are. That's God's secret choice. But in the preaching of the gospel, in the making Christ clear to people around us, God sovereignly brings those people to salvation in Christ, and we get to know their elect only after they repent and believe. But that's the great wonder of this passage. I want my salvation to reflect the greatness of my son. Now, if you're like I was as a young Christian, I knew I was a sinner, and I knew I was messed up, and I knew I was unfit for God, and if God didn't have a Savior, I'm toast. But I did not have a great yet conception of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Who was this one who God gave to deliver me? Who's the Savior? Christ. How great a being is he? Well, I got the fact that he's God and man, and I didn't really think about it. But how great is he as God and man? And what did his purchase buy? I came to purchase men for God. What did he purchase? Well, here's 12 Jews and a couple of lame Gentiles, and that's it. What a dishonoring to Christ. In Romans 8.32, it Paul reasons with us about the greatness of God and salvation in Christ. He reasons from the greater to the lesser. He says, look, when you were lost and just totally clueless and on your way to hell, he who did not spare his own son, he goes, you can have everything else in heaven, but you are not going to get your hands on my son. I will not give you my son for you. He is the one of my eternal love with the Spirit, and I will not give my son for you. And 
we shouldn't look very pious because, frankly, most of us wouldn't give our son to save other people. But God said, but, but Paul says, he who did not spare even his own son. Okay, I'm going to give my son my very best for you. How shall he not also along with him freely give us all things? And Paul's logic is, if he gave his son for you when you only deserved hell, now that you're his blood-bought adopted child, is he going to treat you worse? Is he going to be shabby with you? Okay, here's a nickel. Go we'll live with it. I mean, is that how God views his blood-bought children? No. Well, here in Isaiah 49, he says, Wonder, marvel. It's too light a thing. It's too small a thing. It's inconsequential that he would purchase several million Jews, but that I will give him the nations for his inheritance. Now, how does God's sovereign decree, and this is a decree, he says, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. I'm giving the nations to you. I'm, and the nations is sometimes translated Gentiles. In the Bible, if you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. Everybody on the planet's a Gentile who wasn't a Jew. If you were born a Jew, you have Jewish, Jewish parents, you're Jewish. But if you're not, you're a Gentile. So sometimes it's translated nations. Sometimes it's translated the peoples. But it's really just the idea of Gentiles. I have this great, unnumbered group of people from all over the planet, and my son is going to save them. Now, how does that impact our use of means? I've tried to establish that, and, you know, this is one of many passages I could take you through and say, God is sovereign and he's going to get it done. He said, my son did not die in vain. My son did not die for a few people. I have a cosmic plan that covers the whole planet. Well... Let's look at some of the things it means for us because if we're to be faithful, the Romans 10 idea that God calls churches to call people to go preach the gospel and we are to witness and testify to people around us, what kinds of things shall that impact us to know that God sovereignly decreed this will happen? And then he says, I want you to be faithful on your end where you are and where you go to to be my witnesses. The first thing, and this is so important, one of the reasons why you and I don't witness more and don't think about doing missions or, God, I would never be a missionary. I could never be a preacher. I can't even be a witness. Why? Well, man, I'm just really a great, huge sinner. And our remaining sin and the devil exaggerate the greatness of our sin, and we think too much of our sin. We have an over-magnified view of our sin. I'm not making our sin to be small, but our sin is not ultimately determinative for our lives. If sin was ultimately, ultimately determinative, you never could have been saved. If sin was greater than God, you couldn't have been saved. Well, your sin may indeed feel like a boulder on your back at times. You may view it as this giant boulder at times that crushes you down to the earth and makes you want to be quiet. But we've seen on television, even if none of us ever were there, what a tsunami can do. Have you seen a, a locomotive that might weigh a quarter of a million pounds, be thrown a quarter mile, half a mile inland off its tracks because the tsunami hit it. Have you seen what happened in Japan when the tsunami hit things? And boom, just everything was tossed around. When the tsunami of God's grace hits your life, the boulder goes. Christ's work for you is infinitely greater than all of your sins, all of our sins combined. I will read one other passage of Scripture for you this morning. It's in First. Timothy chapter 1, great confidence and encouragements here for you from the Apostle Paul. 
He says in chapter 1, verses 15 through 17, just listen here. The saying is trustworthy. You can take it to the bank. And deserving of full acceptance, embrace it with all your heart, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. I have never gotten over the fact, by God's grace, that I'm a sinner. And I told Nick yesterday that when I sing the song, Alleluia, Sing to Jesus, and it talks about earth's redeemer, friend of sinners, plead for me. He's a friend of sinners. I know myself to be a sinner. But he's a friend of sinners. He's the very best friend a sinner could ever have. But most sinners, well, oh, no, no, I don't, I don't want someone like that in my life. But Christ says, I'm the best friend a sinner could ever have. Christ Jesus came into the world to save goody-goodies? No. Self-righteous? No. He came to save people who were bankrupt, who were rebels, who didn't want God, could care less about God, were in the fast lane on the freeway to hell, and were oblivious to their condition. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I'm the foremost. I'm the chief. I'm the chief of sinners. I mean, I look at my life, and I marvel that God would have saved me. But I received mercy, he says, for this reason. Why did God save Paul? Well, here's one of the reasons right here. It's not every reason, certainly to the glory of God. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, as the public exhibit A, you want to see a sinner? Here's a guy who used Jesus' name as a punctuation mark. He swore all the time. He cursed God's name. He persecuted the church. And then Paul has a phrase here early in the chapter that people translated differently, but Paul had a sadistic side, and he goes, I like to hurt people. I didn't mind seeing men and women beaten and Stephen stoned to death and parents taken away from their children. I kind of liked it. Part of me got off on being sadistic. I persecuted the church. I used Jesus' name as a swear word all the time, and I like to hurt people. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. In other words, if God can save Paul, he can save anybody. He can save me. I mean, I know what I was like in my B.C. days, but thankfully, yes, I didn't always use the Lord's name correctly, but I wasn't habitually talking that way, and I didn't persecute the church, just didn't care. And I was probably mean at times to people, but I wasn't a sadist. But man, if God can save someone like Paul, Paul says, then he wants you to know he can save someone like you. And then Paul frequently, when he talks about his own salvation in the Scriptures, he's just moved to stop and to pray. Now to the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Oh, yeah, okay, back to my letter to you, Timothy. But man, he cannot contemplate the greatness of his own salvation without marveling. <laughs> oh, God, thank you for saving me. I'd still be lost. I'd still be out there without hope, without God, and in the world. Christ not only cleanses you from your sins, he gives you his righteousness as the free gift. Your status before God now is not on the basis of your sins. It's on the basis that you're in Christ. God sees you in Christ. That's another series of sermons, but not today. The means, this means that we're not a bunch of zeros that God has to work with. 
We are people who have been saved from our sins, cleansed by the blood of Christ, given the righteousness of Christ, set into the Christian life to pursue holiness, to be Christians where we are, to bloom where we're planted. And some of us will be called to become pastors and missionary church planters. Not all of us, because there'd be no church then to send us. We'd all be gone. But most of us will probably still stay here. You can take short-term mission trips. You can be involved in missions and know what's going on. But only a handful of us, perhaps, or over the years more, hopefully, will be going as pastors, preachers, missionary church planters. But we can all be witnesses and evangelists where we are. God uses cracked clay pots like us to display His glory. For example, I can name some very famous people. And let me ask you, what's the name of the layman that led them to Christ? For example, in, in the book of Acts, what's the name of the layman who God said, I want you to go over and lay hands on Paul. I'm working to save him, but he needs to have someone lay hands on him. And can you remember the name of that guy? He's very famous to me, but you go, well, who was this guy? No. Thank you. Good try. But close, but no cigar. Ananias. Yes, Lord. I want you to go lay hands on this guy. Got it. Where does he live? The straight street. Okay, got it. What's his name? Saul of Tarsus. I'm really busy. And, uh, you know, I've got an appointment right now, and I'll just have to take off. I mean, it's almost like Ananias didn't hear the rest of the sentence and starts coming up with excuses why he can't. I've heard that this guy puts space between your head and your shoulders, and I don't want to have anything to do with him. What's the name of the, sh- of the shoe salesman in Boston who took time to invest in the stock boy who worked in the back of the stock room and led this eighth grade stock boy to Christ who became the greatest evangelist of the 19th century, Dwight Moody, who was no great theologian, but he was a powerfully used evangelist. Well, you can do the research and find out the name of the shoe salesman who led a shoe stock boy to Christ who God used as the mightiest evangelist of the 19th century. Charles Spurgeon credits two people in his conversion and his subsequent early growth. Now, his dad was a pastor and his grandfather was a pastor, but he said, in God's providence, those were not the people that God used in my conversion. He says, I was on my way to church one Sunday. I was walking several miles, got caught in a snowstorm, couldn't make it to where I was going. Here's a little chapel. It's a primitive Methodist chapel. I'll go in here. The preacher didn't make it. He was snowed out. And here's the layman. He goes, that layman was a really poor preacher. And he couldn't pronounce Bible words. But he preached this verse from Isaiah, and he says, Look unto me, all the ends of the earth. And, and the guy goes, Son, you look miserable, and you're going to stay miserable until you look to Christ. And it's like, Me? And God used, he says, That man was a poor preacher, but he was faithful to the text, and he pointed me to Christ. And God used that to open my eyes that I needed to look to Christ and not to myself and be having ingrown eyeballs all the time looking to make myself acceptable. Christ makes me acceptable. Here's a Methodist layman who we don't know his name. Spurgeon never shares his name, I don't believe. And then he says, there was a cook who worked for my grandparents and and also my parents, and I learned most of my early theology putting two and two together in the Bible from a cook. They weren't superstars. He didn't go away to some seminary. He never went to seminary. He had laymen encourage him and help him. The only tools God has to work with are cleansed sinners like you and me, but he chooses to use us. And who knows, but we have to realize who we are in Christ. A second point we want to make is if you understand the greatness of God's decree that I'm going to use people like you 
if you understand the greatness of God's decree, you're going to be more bold in praying for the lost. How does that work? I mean praying for the hard cases. I mean people, you go, they're so far from Christ, and they're so sunk into their sins, and they're such hard guy rebels. No way in a thousand years this person's ever going to become a Christian. God says, I love cases like this. Father, you said right here in Isaiah 49 that it was too light a thing that your son would just die for a handful of Jews and you were going to give him the nations. Does your son receive too much glory? Is he too much loved and adored and marveled at? Lord, how much glory would you receive by saving Mr. X or Miss Y or Kid Z? And yes, I know that humanly speaking there's no hope. But it's too small a thing that your son wouldn't have people like this to stand before his throne and marvel for eternity that he would save him. I marvel at my salvation. I wasn't the chief of sinners, but I was pretty far down the road. And I marvel that God would have saved me. And I still marvel, and I hope I never cease marveling till the day I go into glory. But how should we pray? You said here, you said here, Tell him what this verse says. That's how you have confidence in your prayers. You said it was too light a thing. Well, how you would be glorified and people would talk and people would marvel that, look at this person whom the Lord saved. He was ranting and raving, and now he's living for Christ and pursuing holiness. And immoral people are now living holy lives, and drunks are sober, and, and druggies are straightened out, and people who don't give a rip about their families are suddenly working hard at bringing their family back together. Who isn't glorified but God when these miraculous things happen? And you and I need to pray with greater confidence because God has said it's too light a thing for little girls in Sunday school to be the only converts you can see God converting. So we need to understand the greatness of the decree of God giving people to His Son. In 1970, when I moved to California after I graduated from college, in July 4th weekend, of the 11 or 12 million people who live in Los Angeles, about 3 million of them are on the beaches. So if your group wants to go witnessing, go, let's go to the beach. We'll pray that we can find somebody. You know, it's like, it's easier to find a place to put your blanket. So I'm out there and I say, Lord, show me who you want me to witness to. There's people everywhere. But, you know, it kind of gives me time to kind of get my feet underneath me and kind of go, what did I get myself into coming here today? And I'm looking around and all the hundreds of thousands of people on this stretch of Huntington Beach. And here's a guy laying on a blanket with his girlfriend. And this is 1970. He's got a fro out to here. Now, he's a white guy, but he had curly hair so he could let it go. And he had a fro out to here. And he looked ahead of football player's bill like he was playing for then Los Angeles Rams or San Francisco 49ers. He had a great Greek Adonis build. And I was holding myself up to my manliest. And I'm going to go over and witness to this really studly guy. I mean, he looked like a rough, tough guy. When, before it was cool to have tattoos, he had tattoos. So he just looked like a mean, burly dude. I go, okay, Lord, I think I'll go over and witness to him. So, you know, it's kind of, no, I didn't do that. I just walked over, plopped down. I said, hey, man, you got a minute? What? I said, I want to talk to you about something that changed my life, and if you give me five minutes, it might change your life. And his girlfriend was there, and she says, oh, tell him to leave. And he goes, shut up. I want to hear the man. And so, uh, and she kept chiming in. He kept telling her to shut up because he wanted to hear what I had to say. And Harold was kind of 
oh, okay, then let's look to talk about God is great and He loves you and you're a sinner. And I didn't feel particularly powerful or dynamic. I wasn't preaching this awesome sermon. I was just a guy smaller than him coming up to him, telling him that Jesus Christ saves sinners. He saved me and He can save you. And that man humbled himself and prayed in front of his girlfriend after he told her to shut up several times so he could listen to the man. And I didn't know that. I just tried to pick out the scariest dude on the beach. I said, well, if God works, he'll get the glory. And he did. And now 40-some years later, I still remember that man. You're to have greater boldness in praying for these hard cases. Greater boldness. What's your boldness like? Do you have relatives? Oh, this guy, he's got a potty mouth and he's blown off religion all his life. So? We're to have a greater perspective for worldwide evangelism. Now, some of you were here yesterday to to be the first part, but, you know, it's a known thing among pastors. If you want to have a marriage seminar, you you go, well, it's all come because we can improve our marriage. This is how to fix your kids. 5,000 people are here. Let's talk about self-denial and missions. Twelve people show up. Well, it's just not a felt need. I don't need to die to self. I need to have my marriage fixed and my kids happy and a better job. And Okay, I get that. But if you understand the work of Christ, you can't have a small parochial narrow me, myself, and I, and my family, and we have a good church, and life is good, so we're set. No, if you see the work of Christ, you have to have a worldwide vision. What do I mean? At one time, the scariest people to bring the gospel to were the dreaded Europeans. The gospel was first preached among the brown Jews in the Middle East and some Africans who were there at Pentecost, and you can hear their names, and men from Libya and Cyrene, places like that, Egypt and Ethiopia, And all the early ministry was in Turkey, which was called Asia Minor in the Roman Empire, and Syria, and again in Palestine. But nobody had gone to the Europeans. Why? Because those dudes are really messed up. I mean, people are lost. Those people are really lost. In fact, in the first century, if you went off the deep end and just became totally a moral mess, they say, oh yeah, he Corinthianized. The city of Corinth was famous for just being a gross place, and the Corinthians were gross people. And if if anybody went off the deep end, he Corinthianized. It was just a byword that the hardest people to reach would have been the Gentiles. So Paul's retracing steps of a missionary journey, and God the Holy Spirit wouldn't let him go into Asia and wouldn't let him go into Bithynia. And he goes, well, this didn't work, and this doesn't work. Lord, what do you want me to do? And that night he has a vision. We're sitting here this morning because of that vision. Paul recognizes a man in Macedonian garb and a Macedonian dialect probably of Greek and says, come over and help us. Come over and help us. And Paul is at Troas, a seaport. He says, we determined that God wants us to take the gospel to the Gentiles of all people, the European Gentiles, not the Asian Gentiles, not the Africans in North Africa, but to the really creepy people, us. And he crosses the sea, and then, yes, we know the churches like in Ephesus was in Asia Asia Minor, but then places like what? Philippi and Thessalonica and Rome. Those are with the European Gentiles, the really hard guys. God has established a church, but God had to open the eyes of even Paul to see that these people are not too far gone that we can't reach them. 
And so we pray with confidence. Paul ministered to those people and churches were started. And 2,000 years later, we are the lineal descendants of that church that was planted because Paul couldn't go here and couldn't go there. And God leads him to go to the dreaded European Gentiles. And we're sitting here today. And we have a brother from Africa here. Maybe there's some people from Asia here. You were considered probably easier to reach and more normal than the creepy people sitting around you. Look at these creepy people here. Uh, kind of scary. We're not finger-pointing, are we? Okay. Father, you showed that you could save even the European Gentiles, who the Jewish Christians were kind of blown away that debauched people like that could be saved. But that's where you chose to work because it gave you the most glory. God, I don't want to have a small mind and act like you can't work in other places with other unlikely candidates for salvation. Who in your life is an unlikely candidate for salvation that you need to pray for? Because God gave the nations to His Son, and it's too light a thing that even the hard guys and the hard women and the debauched people and the people who are so far strung out on drugs and they've promised so many times to get off meth and they can't get off meth. But God, You can change them. You can make them want to be sober and You can make them sober. You can make drunks sober. And You can make people who are addicted to sex to be holy, chaste people. You can do that. And if we all stood up and bared our testimonies, that's who is in this congregation right now. But we need to pray like that's true. Number four, you can send out men and women to the hard places. Your church can send out men and women to the hard places for the very reason that God has promised the nations to His Son. In the history of world missions, people have gone to some really awful places, and they didn't go there. They're going, oh, they're just waiting for me to come and tell them about Jesus. Because we saw yesterday morning, they're not waiting for you to tell them about Jesus. They could care less. And if you really push Jesus on them, they'll persecute you. So you'd do better if you left them alone, you think. But knowing that God has given the nations to His Son, you can go like Henry Martin went to Persia, or what we now call Iran, or Iraq. You can go to places like... North Africa, you can go to places that are unlikely places to see gospel success other than the fact that God has promised to give the nations to His Son. Father, I'm just, you know, I'm part of a team and we're going here to Outer Slavovia. And we all know the Outer Slavovs are really wicked people. And they could care less about the gospel. But at one time I was like this. Everybody I knew at one time was like this. And you've promised to give people to your Son Glorify yourself by having outer Slavovians stand before your throne and marveling that Christ would save someone like us. John Calvin, let me give you a verse, Revelation 5, 9. This is what the creatures and the saints in heaven are praising God for in Revelation chapter 5. Just verse 9. Worthy are you, Lamb, to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people group and nation. And you've made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. You've done it. You purchased them. We don't know who they are. It's like we're going to take out our giant electromagnet, and if there's something metal out here, the gospel will bring them to the electromagnet. But we don't know who they are. But you've promised, and you've accomplished it. Now, we want to be faithful to do our part. 
And as timid as we are, we want to go out and tell these people and see who you bring. That's what missions is all about. Not great, mighty men going out and saying, world, we're here, you lucky dogs, and we're going to tell you about Jesus and come on into our church. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, I was with you in much fear and trembling, and I wasn't a profound speaker, but in a demonstration of the Holy Spirit and His power, I came to you in Corinth. Because you guys were scary, and I was scared. In fact, it says in Acts 19 that God gave Paul a dream one night and says, Stop being afraid. Do you know what that tells us? Paul was afraid. Keep on preaching here. The inference was you were going to stop. Why? Because I have many people in this place. So you go to 1 Corinthians 6. List of all the kinds of sinners that made up the Corinthian church. It sounds like Savannah or Atlanta. And God gets the glory. Final note here. You can stay a layman. Again, most of you God's not going to call. I'm not suggesting God's not calling anyone, but most of you won't be called. And if you end up staying a layman, you can know that your prayers and your giving and your living are not in vain. There have to be Christians living the Christian life to give credibility to the witness. If you're all acting like you did in your B.C. days all the time, people will just blow off Christianity and say, that's not true. Their lives never changed. But if supernatural invasion from a God who really exists, who didn't die on the cross but was raised from the dead, ascended to heaven, sent God the Holy Spirit to change people's lives, if that is true, their lives really change. Unholy people become holy people. People who could give a rip about Christ suddenly love Christ and want to give their lives to Him. But you can stay, and whether it's in Rincon or Savannah or Atlanta where I live, you can have an impact for Christ. For example, have you ever gone over this passage in Isaiah 49 with your children, just in family devotions? Kids, that Pastor Martin guy, he was kind of a knucklehead, but boy, he had some good things to say here about Isaiah 49. And look at this. Christ gave the nations to his... The Father gave the nations to his Son. Christ has purchased people from every tribe and tongue. Isn't that exciting? We can pray with confidence, kids. It's not just pictures of the missionary on the refrigerator, as helpful as that is. We can pray that God would give power and authority and full conviction to these men as they preach. You can pray for your neighbors. Oh, not that guy. He is, man, I want to put up a 30-foot-high wall between that guy because he's such a knucklehead. I don't want... You can pray for knuckleheads. God saves knuckleheads. That's another technical term. McFly, anyone in there? You can pray for friends at work, co-workers, relatives. You know that uncle of you who likes to taunt you and throw out little racy things or things that make you upset when you have family gatherings because he's trying to provoke your Christianity? God can save smarty pants and turn them into holy men or women. You can give generously and wisely because your labors and your monies are never given in vain. Who knows, but that God will use your witness and your prayers and your life and your giving because God gave the nations to His Son. And He says, guess what? I want you guys to be participants with me. You're in the Romans 10 section of being the faithful Christians who are sending out folks and being the church and supporting missions and being, local, doing, being involved in local evangelism. And who knows what the day will show. There will be people in heaven and they'll say, 
That's the lady right there to me. She gave me a track one day at work, and I blew it off. But two weeks later, I was really upset, and I read that track. And that was where I at. That's where I was at. And God used that track to save me. Or he's my cousin, and he witnessed to me when I was lost as a mackerel. And I've been found, and I'm Christ now. Or this person went, and he didn't feel so great, but he felt called. And he went to this place, and God used his imperfect, fallible missionary work to do great good for the glory of Christ. What a privilege we have to participate with the Father in the extension of the kingdom of His Son, that His Son would be seen to be glorious and it was too small a thing that He just died for two tribes of the, of the Jews. He's died to save the nations. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I confess that I had spent months and years at different times having a very small, very unworthy, really a wicked view of you that you were just a little bit bigger than me and a lot like me. But thankfully you are not. You are infinitely greater than me and I'm nothing really like you. You are holy, holy, holy. And you are sovereign. Nothing thwarts you. And you know everything. If there had been a better path for us, you would have had us on that path. You know everything that's best for us. But you are a God of mercy and grace beyond anyone's ability to articulate it. And we see here in Isaiah 49 and Romans 10 that you want to use crummy little clay pots like us to see people come to Christ, that all of those that you gave to the Son will be there. Continue to do your work in Ephesus Church and in our individual lives. Show your Son to be glorious. Make, our, make us pinch ourselves with wonder that you would have saved us and that you would have used us. Take great glory for your Son, we pray. It's too light a thing that he just died for a few. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.